This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, what did Trump know about Russian money laundering, and when did he know it? Bob Dreyfus of The Nation will report on new evidence about the connections that Donald Trump is desperate to conceal. Also, the deep history of the radical right's stealth plan for America, historian Nancy McLean will explain. First up today, the pardon power of the president. Trump can pardon his son, Don Jr. He can pardon his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. But can he pardon himself? Trump Watch starts right now. Well, the news at this hour is that the special prosecutor, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, has impaneled his own special grand jury today in Washington, D.C. This is different from using the existing grand juries, which is what uh, most prosecute, all prosecutors do. It suggests that the special, uh, the special counsel, Robert Mueller, uh, has full-time work for his own grand jury to go on for the next weeks and months. And that requires, he believes, a special grand jury impaneled today in Washington, D.C. Of course, what grand juries do is issue subpoenas which compel witnesses to testify, uh, making them vulnerable to charges of perjury and obstruction of justice. If they plead the Fifth Amendment and choose and and refuse to testify under the constitutional uh, privilege against self-incrimination, the special counsel can, or the prosecutors in this case, can grant them immunity and then compel their testimony. Uh, This is a big step forward in the proceedings against Donald Trump, his family, and his campaign associates, and they raise the question of pardons for the the president has the power of the pardon. How far does it extend? We had a conversation with David Cole of the ACLU about this last week. Let's listen now. Now it's time to talk about the pardon power of the president and the independence of the Justice Department. Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. It's the only thing anyone remembers about Gerald Ford. Could Donald Trump pardon himself? And What happens then? Did the Founding Fathers consider the scenario we now may be facing? For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent, the author most recently of the book Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. And most important, he's national legal director of the ACLU. David Cole, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, let's start with our current, at least at this hour, Tuesday afternoon, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Trump has made it pretty clear he would like to get rid of him. And if he gets a different attorney general who would end the investigation by the special counsel, he wouldn't have to decide whether to pardon himself. I guess my first question is, is the Justice Department supposed to be independent of the president? Didn't didn't JFK appoint his own brother as his attorney general? What what are the rules here? Well, the, so the Justice Department is part of the executive branch. And if you take a strong unitary executive view that the uh, executive branch should be controlled by the president. The Justice Department is just, a, you know, another agency uh, like the uh, Department of Agriculture, and 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 so in in that sense, takes its cues from the president. 
Uh, however, uh, we have had a long tradition of recognizing the importance of a degree of independence uh, in law enforcement in particular, and the Justice Department is responsible for law enforcement, and therefore we have a tradition of independence with respect to U.S. attorneys, a, a tradition of independence with respect to the FBI, and uh, and with the uh, Solicitor General's office. So it's a it's a it's a mixed bag. It's part of the executive branch, um, but it has long rested on a kind of norm of a certain degree of independence, which is what gives its its gives it its legitimacy. And and Donald Trump is, uh, as with virtually all other norms uh, of constitutional governance, Donald Trump is is threatening that. What Trump has been tweeting about is the thing he says he's most unhappy with Attorney General Jeff Sessions about is not so much that he has not fired the special prosecutor yet. Of course, that's what we think he's unhappy about. It's that he has not investigated Hillary Clinton. The idea of the president ordering the attorney general to begin a criminal investigation of his election opponent, is that something the Founding Fathers uh, imagined? Is that anywhere in the Constitution? Well, it's, it's certainly not. And, and you know, I think the, the reality, of course, is that there was an investigation uh, of of Hillary Clinton, and it was uh, it was determined that there was nothing, no, no basis for proceeding. So uh, I think that's, you know, that should be over and done with. But, you know, what we've heard from uh, inside uh, White House sources is that, the, of course, the real concern from Trump's perspective, is that Sessions took this job and then recused himself from the Russia inquiry, which means that he's not in a position to exercise any loyalty to Donald Trump by trying to uh, interfere with uh, the Russia investigation, which Donald Trump, uh, you know, is is deeply troubled by. Now, it seems to me that firing or forcing the resignation of the attorney general to prevent or stop an investigation of possible crimes by the president, seems to me that's an obstruction of justice. Am I wrong about that? Well, so it, it depends on what its motive is. Uh, you know, the, the, the president certainly has the right to ask for the resignation of or to terminate any of his uh, cabinet secretaries, including uh, his attorney general. Um, so uh, he has that right. If he's doing that, uh, in order to uh, interfere with an, a, a criminal investigation of the president, then it raises serious rule of law uh, questions because no one, including the president, uh, should be above the law. But you know, keep in mind that firing uh, uh, Sessions doesn't actually solve the problem for Donald Trump because Sessions doesn't have the power to stop the uh, the the special counsel investigation. And whoever Trump appointed as Sessions' successor, uh, there would be tremendous pressure on him in the hearings to commit to not interfering with the special counsel investigation, because, of course, this would be the concern. So I, I think I don't think firing Sessions really does him any good. 
Of course, Trump can avoid confirmation hearings, at least for a while, by waiting for the Senate to go on its August summer recess and then making this recess appointment thing that we heard so much about in the Obama, last Obama years. A recess appointment of a new attorney general would avoid Senate confirmation hearings for, for a while. I think it's a six-month appointment. Do I, have I got that right? It is a temporary appointment. I, I don't remember precisely how long uh, it's for, but yes, it's a it's a way to essentially fill uh, a seat while the while the Senate is is out, but it's only for a temporary uh, period. You know, I, I I guess he could do that. It would be an act of uh, tremendous desperation. Look, all of the things that are on the table here: firing Sessions, putting someone in, in through a recess appointment to take his place seeking to uh, fire Mueller, the special counsel. Uh, they're all things that there are formal legal mechanisms by which they can be achieved. But they all would be tremendous acts of desperation uh, by the president. They would send a signal to the world that notwithstanding the tremendous cost that any of those steps would inflict on the president, he determined that those costs were worth it. And the only reason he would determine that those costs are worth it was because what the special counsel might otherwise reveal in the ordinary course would be so damaging yes. uh, that the president is willing to undertake these costs. And if that's the case, there's, there would be tremendous pressure on alternative ways to get those facts out. A bipartisan commission would almost certainly be be required, and there would be uh, there would be calls for all of Mueller's work to be to be disclosed publicly in a report and the like. Uh, you know, so I I I think these are all uh, the the very fact that they're under consideration only underscores uh, that Donald Trump feels like a cornered man. Uh, that he's that he's that desperate that he is uh, even thinking about things that are uh, I, I think you you don't even begin to go down those roads unless you are really seeing your demise if you don't take action. And the writers of the Constitution, of course, were well aware of the possibility that the president might uh, commit crimes. But they also gave the president the power to grant pardons for federal crimes. The president can pardon pretty much anybody. We know this. The recent experience is Bill Clinton, who two hours before leaving office, Bill Clinton pardoned 176 people, including figures from the Whitewater scandal and a fugitive whose ex-wife had raised $320,000 for the uh, Clinton's campaigns. He also pardoned his own brother. Is there anyone the president can't pardon? Well, there, there's a, a lively debate uh, about whether the president can pardon himself. Strangely, that's exactly who I had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only, you know, he, he is the only person as to whom there is a question. Yes. Uh, you know, he, he, he can pardon uh, anybody else of a federal crime, and he can, uh, he can pardon them even if they haven't yet been indicted, uh, as long as he's pardoning them for acts that they've committed in the past, he can he can sort of prospectively pardon them, uh, thereby barring an indictment under federal law. So he can do that. But there's but no president has ever sought to pardon himself. Uh, and there's a you know there's a decent argument that the common law 
with respect to pardon, I mean, the Constitution doesn't say anything one way or the other, but the common law understanding of the pardon power is the, the, the authority to exercise mercy vis-a-vis others, not to be the judge of your own cause. Uh, and therefore, there's a decent argument that the pardon power does not, in fact, include uh, the president. Again, for the president to take that action, unprecedented action, to pardon himself, he would have to be in such dire straits, in such hot water, uh, that I think other mechanisms would bring him down. Uh, and, and I think that would only precipitate those other mechanisms being taken. So, so again, I, I don't think it's uh, likely, uh, we're likely to see, to see that unless he is truly in a desperate position. I think if you're in that desperate position, you're more likely to resign than to try to pardon yourself and hold on. So possible scenarios here. One, Trump gets a new attorney general the attorney general ends the investigation conducted by the special counsel of Russia's complicity with the Trump campaign in electing him president. Another possibility, Trump pardons everybody under investigation by the special counsel, which makes the investigations moot. In both of these cases, the Constitution provides a mechanism for objecting to this, and that's the House can bring articles of impeachment accusing the president, charging the president with the crime of obstruction of justice. Right now, the House is controlled by Republicans. We can hope that enough Republicans would join Democrats at that point to bring articles of impeachment. If they were to succeed, it would go for a trial in the Senate where a two-thirds vote is required to convict. That seems unlikely. The Constitution does leave one other recourse, I believe, and that's to the voters. We can vote in a new Congress. Absolutely. We, at the midterms. We can, yes, we can vote in a new Congress uh, at the midterms. And, you know, again, I, I think if, you've, if we've gotten to a point where the president is so desperate that he is taking these sorts of measures, you know, then it's a real test of character of the, of the Congress of the United States and the men and women who serve there. And if they fail that test uh, and do not take, you know, the, the right action against the president who is engaged in blatant self-dealing to, to try to interfere with a uh, criminal investigation into his own affairs, then I think yeah, I, I would expect the American people to hold those uh, members accountable, and 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 we would have a, an election, and then the next Congress would be in a much better position to hold the president accountable. David Cole, legal director of the ACLU and legal correspondent of the Nation magazine. David, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure. And since we taped that interview, we've had more news on this front. The new White House chief of staff, John Kelly, we are told called Jeff Sessions and told him, quote, your tenure is secure. Of course, who knows how long John Kelly will last as the new White House chief of staff, especially in view of the news at this hour that uh, the special counsel has impaneled his own special grand jury today in New York City, which will be issuing uh, subpoenas for documents uh, which will be taking a testimony, no doubt, exposing the uh, possible witnesses to perjury and obstruction charges. Uh, President Trump at this hour is on his way flying from Washington, D.C. to a campaign rally 
in West Virginia. He has not yet commented on the news about the special counsel impaneling his own uh, special grand jury in uh, Washington. Perhaps tonight in West Virginia, before that very friendly, cheering audience, he will say something about this. Uh, For the last day or two, he has not mentioned uh, Jeff Sessions uh, or uh, the special uh, counsel, Robert Mueller. Uh, Perhaps you will return to that topic, Life on Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK. This is Trump Watch uh, and TrumpWatchPodcast.com. There's one additional piece of news at this hour that we should report, and that's that Uh, Continuing this question of what will happen if Trump attempts to either uh, fire the special, fire the attorney general or replace the special uh, counsel, two members of the Senate Judiciary Committee moved today to protect special counsel counsel Robert Mueller from being fired by President Trump. Uh, They put forth new legislation that aims to ensure the integrity of current and future independent investigations. The two are Republican Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. Delaware. Uh, this is sort of a complicated proposal that the Senate has not yet taken up to uh, let any special counsel uh, challenge his or her removal by going to court and appearing before a three-judge panel to review the dismissal uh, within 14 days. Uh, it's not clear how this would ever work, but it's certainly part of the move by Senate, the Senate, including many Senate Republicans, to defend uh, the position of Jeff Sessions and the work of the special counsel, uh, Robert Mueller. Uh, Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, said last week that if Trump fired Mueller, that would, quote, precipitate a firestorm that would be unprecedented in proportions, uh, close quote. So the Senate is possibly going to pass uh, legislation that would protect the special counsel or at least his investigation. They're about to go on their August recess, I believe, at the end of this week, uh, giving Trump that opportunity during the recess to make a recess appointment. Life with Trump Watch. Next up on Trump Watch, the deep history of the radical right. That's in a minute on KPFK when our program continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, the investigations of the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia are opening doors Donald Trump is desperate to keep shut. Bob Dreyfus of The Nation will report. But first, the deep history of the radical right's stealth plan for America— For that, we turn to Nancy McLean. She's an award-winning historian and the William H. Chafe Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. She's the author of an important new book. It's titled Democracy in Chains. We reached her today at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Nancy McLean, welcome to the program. Hi, John. It's great to be with you. So in 1970, in the 1970s, 
liberals controlled the House by big margins. They controlled the Senate by massive margins. They had a majority of the Supreme Court. Now the Republicans not only control all three branches of the federal government, but two-thirds of the state governments. Uh, and these are the Republicans, special kind of Republican, the new kind of Republican who believe that government is the problem and that uh, tax cuts are the answers. How did this change come about? Of course, we blame, we give credit, we give the blame to the Koch brothers for funding and organizing the funding of the this new kind of Republican candidate, a campaign that's had you know, frightening success at achieving their long-term goals. I always thought... The Koch brothers' strategy came from, I wasn't sure where, maybe the Heritage Foundation, maybe they thought it up themselves. You in Democracy in Chains point out uh, that Charles Koch had been supporting right-wing candidates since the 60s and had been a political failure for decades. Uh, he didn't really have a good idea about how to win, that money, even hundreds of millions of dollars, wasn't doing it. So he spent decades looking for ideas that would help him break through. He supported hundreds of scholars and intellectuals hoping they would help. And you have discovered the intellectual basis for the Koch brothers' political success. Tell us what you found. Well, thank you for that uh, introduction, John. Yes, I found this uh, trail, and I have to say, I, I think I only was able to find it um, uh, circuitously by going from the mid-1950s up. I, I don't think almost anybody could have found it from the present going back because we would not have known what to look for. Um, most people on the left and you know, liberals and moderate Americans have never heard of a man named James McGill Buchanan, who supplied the ideas that made Koch's money a Effective, and I only uh, happened on him. I didn't know about him when I started uh, a research project that became this book, and I got intrigued by what he was doing in the 1950s in Virginia and followed that story, and it led me ultimately to Coke. Um, but yes, absolutely, as you said in your introduction, what's really stunning is that libertarianism uh, for many years, uh, for half a century, was a very marginal uh, proposition. You know, it was on the fringes of American politics even today, you know, less than 4% of American voters identify as libertarian. So it's an absolutely minority current in our politics. But what we've seen in recent years is that, or I'm sorry, um, Charles Koch, has been very patient. And, you know, and I talk about that in the book, but he's, you know, he's someone who um, is one of the richest men in the world. Um, he runs a huge privately held corporation, and he's an extremely strategic person who plays the long game and has infinite patience. And he, as you said, he funded hundreds and hundreds of scholars by his own admission, looking for what he called the technology that would let him break through, that would enable these inherently minority ideas ideas to actually achieve a, a transformation. And I should say, Koch is really a messianic. He's not only, I think, a brilliant and strategic figure, but he's also a messianic figure. He's compared himself to Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation. And he said when he gave a huge uh, contribution to James uh, Buchanan's center at George Mason University in 1997, at the start of all this, he said that he wanted, and I quote, to unleash the kind of force that propelled Columbus to his discovery. Wow. So this is someone who really has, a, a me again, a messianic sense of yeah. his own world historic mission, and it is 
ironically and tragically, precisely because we have allowed inequality to develop in our society to the point that someone like him literally has hundreds of millions of dollars of spare change, you know, to to put around and to invest in a kind of venture capital way uh, to see uh, what will work, that now we are faced with a project to shackle our democracy by stealth means. And a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, will draw a breath and say, oh, my gosh, that's an exaggeration. How can she say such a thing? Uh, and I have to say that I myself was often shocked when I was doing my research and just literally like physically sickened when I started to understand these ideas and I started to understand the scale of this apparatus that Koch had built up to, to uh, um, put these ideas into effect essentially behind the backs of the American people. So it's so, really a chilling story. So James McGill Buchanan, I have to say, mm-hmm. I had never heard of this guy, even though it turns out he did win the Nobel Prize for Economics. Uh, he's the source of the ideas, uh, the strategies that Charles Koch uh, put into practice. Who is, who was James McGill Buchanan? What was his work about? Yeah. He was uh, um, uh, born in Tennessee in 1919, was the only, in fact, Southerner uh, to win the Nobel Prize at the time that he won it. Um, He worked in Southern institutions most of his life, and he came through the University of Chicago, where he worked with Frank Knight and Milton Friedman and other people who were part of what... um, the Mount Pelerine Society project that some of your listeners may have heard about, but basically this kind of ultra free market kind of fundamentalist, um, some would call it neoliberal transnational grouping that began in 1947. And so Buchanan was very much part of that milieu. But what he did that was distinctive from others is that he used that economic toolkit to analyze politics. And he developed an approach uh, that is called public choice in its broadest catchment. And there are some liberal who, who you know work in the public choice tradition, I should say, but his specific variant was uh, came to be called Virginia political economy. And what he did was to look at uh, he he said at the outset that that when he set to work at mid-century, um, you know, it was the time that Keynesian economics were dominant, you know, labor unions were very much accepted, all kinds of collective behavior was widely accepted and understood as legitimate because people believed that you needed countervailing power to the massive corporations that had developed in American society. Well, Buchanan did not see things like that. He was a libertarian individualist. He disdained of collective power. He did not believe that anybody thought about the common good or the collective good. So he actually said that his mission was, and this was his verb, to tear down the idea of public interest that that prevailed uh, in the late 1950s. And what he did to do that was to, uh, as economists would say, model political actors as, uh, as, as, as the Chicago School did market actors. So to say that no matter what anybody said, they were actually seeking their own self-interest. So an elected official who told you that they were, say, supporting unions for the common interest and working for a clean environment because that was what the people wanted and that was good for them, Buchanan would say, no, 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 no. That person, that politician is actually doing that because he can get the votes of those constituencies. And by his analysis, politicians were buying votes with other people's money. 
And he came to view the entire enterprise as illegitimate and to say that we needed a constitutional revolution to stop it. And Charles Payne, I mean, Charles Payne, I don't know, I flashed Charles Payne probably because the civil rights story buried in here. But um, Charles Koch, uh, Charles Koch picked up those ideas. And, and there's much more to it than I can say. I know our time is limited. But Charles Koch picked up these ideas and is actually pushing uh, not only for radical changes applying uh, Buchanan's ideas, but uh, in, in policies um, to undermine unions, to privatize Social Security and Medicare, to suppress votes, to gerrymander on a massive scale, all of those kinds of things. But ultimately, what those, those, uh, those policy changes are enabling is a radical change in our fundamental national rule book, and that is the Constitution. So this Koch donor network and its allied politicians, who, as you pointed out, now control so many states, what they are pushing for is a constitutional convention uh, in, in which they would be able to push through uh, their, what they call, liberty amendments. And those liberty amendments would hamstring uh, government and shackle democracy like nothing we have ever seen before in this country. It is really a chilling prospect. And by some counts, they have 28 of the 34 states they need to succeed. Wow. Well, you call you say this is was known as Virginia political economy in the South is a fascinating key to this whole story. Uh, you know, we think of the right wing of the Republican Party. The Goldwater movement comes from Arizona. The Reagan movement comes from Southern California. We've I've always thought it was a Sunbelt phenomenon, but you show that. The South has been the key historically to the rise of the right and that this libertarian movement actually is deeply connected to the opposition to the civil rights movement. Let's, let's use the word racism here, which isn't necessarily part of libertarian ideology, but because of the way the civil rights movement enlisted the federal government in, mm -hmm. in achieving civil rights, we had a blending of Southern white voters and libertarian uh, a theory. Uh, and today we have Southern domination of our politics to a surprising extent. You've summarized it beautifully. And yes, that's how I found James uh, um, McGill uh, Buchanan was by accident looking into the story of how Virginia led the South in massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education and uh, adopted school vouchers to enable um, the selling or the you know shifting of tax revenues to segregated white private schools, um, at private academies. And Buchanan, I found, was playing a role in that, as was Milton Friedman. And that's another story. But just as you summarized, what was interesting to me is that they did not speak explicitly in terms of race, and they claimed to disdain racial prejudice and disdain state-sponsored segregation, although they'd done nothing to fight it and did nothing to, to condemn it that I was ever able to find. Um, but, but they said they also opposed um, what they call it forced integration, which was also a segregationist term, I should say. Yeah. But, but what I believe, I mean, I don't think that, they, that these economists were obsessed by race in the way that so many white Virginians who were saying we should shut down public education and fund private schools and, you know, God damn it, we're not going to obey the federal court telling us to put black and white children together. But what, what the economists did that I think is almost more chilling is uh, they saw this as an opportunity for their cause. These, these ideas that they had of privatizing 
all kinds of things, right? And of breaking down the power of collectives. Those ideas were totally marginal in the, the late 50s. Um, it was a time, as you mentioned earlier, of, of liberal dominance, of a widespread sense of, you know, kind of the, the common good and the need for countervailing power. And so these um, uh, kind of right-wing uh, libertarian economists saw in the Southern schools crisis an opportunity to move their cause forward. And they saw also, I think, a mass base for that cause. And it was exactly that mass base that Barry Goldwater tapped in 1964 when yes. he ran for president, having opposed the Civil Rights Act, which all libertarians I've ever come across uh, did. Um, and he also opposed the Brown decision. And people may not remember it, but, but Barry Goldwater was the first, you could say, neoliberal candidate. He, it, it, you know, the way that term is, is used, he supported privatizing Social Security. He wanted a flat tax instead of graduated progressive income taxes. And he also called for selling off the Tennessee Valley Authority, which had brought huh. rural electrification to so many uh, Southerners um, who were not wealthy. So, um, so it, it was really extraordinary. The only states that Goldwater won, besides his home state of Arizona, were the states of the Deep South that yes. practiced extreme voter suppression. Yes. So it's almost like anticipating what we're starting to see now, that this cause, this Koch-led cause, cannot win if the public understands what it's doing and what it's seeking, um, but they can throw smoke in people's eyes by throwing out anodyne phrases like limited government, you know, keeping more of your tax dollars in your pocket, you know, all of this stuff that sounds nice. But meanwhile, they're pushing for things that nobody wants, like privatizing Social Security and Medicare, like pushing through that god-awful health care bill that, you know, most Republicans didn't want. Um, You know, so all of these things uh, they're doing, but they also understand that to do it, they need to suppress the vote. Hence, they have encouraged this, what they know to be a lie from, you know, systematic research. There is no significant voter fraud in America, and yet they're suppressing the votes of up to 6 million Americans by some counts, and these extreme gerrymanders that, just as in the 1950s, uh, over-represent rural conservative interests and under-represent urban and suburban interests. And it's very interesting, in fact, the massive resistance legislation that Virginia passed in 1956 would not have passed if they did not have gerrymandering that over-represented rural conservative Uh districts. So it's almost like we're just going back to that that time. And in fact, I think that is the model of liberty that this Koch donor network really wants is what you saw in Virginia at mid-century minus the segregation. Let's talk about Trump. Trump is not a libertarian. At least he certainly did not run as a libertarian. And that's the reason the Koch brothers did not support Trump for president. Trump was against free trade. He promised a national health care program that he said would be terrific. He said he would protect Social Security and Medicare. Uh, in fact, he called the Republicans during the, those Republican debates during the primaries, he called the Republicans who the Koch brothers supported as puppets. Trump was yes. not a libertarian right winger. Uh, the mm-hmm. Koch brothers did not support him for president. Uh, where do we stand right now between the how are the Koch brothers getting along with yeah. Trump right now? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important point that you make, and I think it's also important for listeners to to remember, to take themselves back to the primaries, and as you say, Trump was the only one of the Republican uh, front runners who was not carrying the Koch agenda. 
And again, James McGill Buchanan taught, uh, don't focus on who rules, focus on the rules. Mm. And if you focus on personalities, you'll never get anywhere. If you focus on fundamentally changing the rules to restrain uh, political actors, as he advocated, in my words, to shackle them, because he always called for enchaining the Leviathan in in his term. Um, If you focus on those, you will get somewhere. And so the interesting thing is all those Republican frontrunners had, you know, hook, line, and sinker were accepting the Koch donor network's agenda. Trump seemed not to be, as you say, you know, on free trade, on he promised, you know, the health insurance. He he did all these kinds of things. Um, And I think that made him, I mean, certainly there was a lot of racism, a lot of, you know, bigotry of all kinds and, and, you know, whatever that played into Trump's support. But a part of it, I think, is that a lot of Republican voters, almost at a kind of intuitive level, knew that their party was getting hijacked. And they, you know, and I think that's kind of what happened when they say he speaks for himself. You know, he's not, he's not, he has his own money. He doesn't have to answer to others. Now, that may have led some people who might not otherwise uh, vote for him to have voted for him. But now, since he's in office, he has, he's surrounded by Koch people. So how that happened, we don't know. But by one researcher's count, 70% of Trump's uh, senior appointees are from the Koch donor network. Wow. And virtually all of the people who are in key places come from that donor network. So Mike Pence, the vice president, you know, I would urge the left to say, you know, slow down on impeachment because we get Mike Pence then and he would actually be a lot more competent in pushing through this agenda. And we saw from the primary debate he had with um, uh, um, uh, uh, Kane, Tim Kane how honest he is. Um, okay. So um, Mike Pence is, is, is one person who's there. Mick Mulvaney, his budget director, crucial, important f- position. Mick Mulvaney comes out of this network. Mark Short, who is uh, the White House liaison to Congress to get the agenda through. Well, lo and behold, he comes from five years at the head of Freedom Partners, which is a Coke donor uh, operation. Um, Scott Pruitt in the EPA, uh, now the head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, Naomi Rao. I mean, you could just go through the list at every key place, there are people who are associated with this radical right donor network um, who are calling the shots and who are doing radical policy changes. So while we're all focused on Trump's latest tweets, these people are pushing through this agenda. So I'm kind of urging, I know this Trump, this show is called Trump Watch, and I totally get that, and that's really important work. But I also am encouraging people to try an experiment, to try a week where they don't focus on Trump himself, where they ignore his tweets, and they start finding out what radical changes are being pushed through in his administration. Because I really believe that this is like the classic con man. You know, he stretches an arm out here, you know, and catches your attention with something. And meanwhile, you know, the other out of your view, all these other things are happening. And, you know, we've seen this, we're seeing this in the EPA, we're seeing it in the Labor Department, we're seeing it in the courts, we're seeing in all these places the Trump, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the Koch donor network agenda is going through. Nancy McLean, her important new book on the deep history of the radical right is called Democracy in Chains. It's out now from Viking. Nancy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. It was good to be with you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, the Russia investigations in the Trump family businesses. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry Quickly talks to the Washington Post about language control on the Internet. But first, what did Donald Trump and Jared Kushner know about Russian money laundering, and when did they know it? The investigations of the Trump-Russia connections are opening doors Donald Trump is desperate to keep shut. For comment and analysis, we turn to Bob Dreyfus. He's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone. He's also written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, Salon, and he's appeared widely on TV and radio. Bob Dreyfus, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, your new report at The Nation, just published a couple of hours ago, opens by noting Trump's recent statement that the investigations of Russian collusion with his campaign should not, quote, cross the line, close quote, into investigating his family's finances. What is the relationship between his family finances and what we call the Russia thing? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I should point out that uh, the, there's no question that the investigation will cross that line. In fact, there's a number of reports indicating that uh, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, is already, um, you know, in a deep dive into into Trump's uh, finances, into his into his family's finances, and and it's both the Trump and Kushner. Um, real estate empires, right? And, I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a very complex web of financial transactions. Luckily, Mueller has some pretty high-powered and sophisticated people, including former New York prosecutors, to, to um, you know, to look into this. Um, but I guess if we started with that famous meeting last June, a year ago, that... Um, Don Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, and Paul Manafort, his campaign manager, had with the, uh, with the Russians. Um, it's kind of a th- one thread, and, and there are many other threads, but this is one really important thread that Mueller could start pulling on, because um, what was at stake in that meeting was uh, a sanctions law passed uh, back in 2012, called the Magnitsky Act. That's what the the woman who organized that meeting was was trying to uh, either cancel or or change uh, to Russia's benefit. And that law was was uh, passed because uh, there was a massive sort of government and private theft of a corporation in Russia had been raided and taken over and looted. And the money from that raid was then laundered into uh, a series of real estate and banking transactions in the West, including in New York. And this goes back now years. The U.S. attorney, Preet Bharara, in New York, uh, four years ago, had started looking into this case and said that the money from that uh, Magnitsky-related thievery was being laundered through New York. And it turns out 
that the woman who was meeting with those three Trump campaign people, including his his son, was directly tied up in that laundered money. So it, it raises all kinds of conflict of interest problems that, that you know, a prosecutor would just love to start diving into. So the fascinating thing here is the, the first thing we were told about that Trump Tower meeting was that it was only about Russian adoptions. Actually, Russian adoptions leads us through just a couple of steps into the money laundering that you're talking about, because the ban on Russian adoptions that Putin adopted was retaliation for sanctions for the money laundering that put money through a building which Jared Kushner owned part of uh, in uh, in Times Square. Well, well, yeah, what happened was the lawyer who was looking into that case, Sergei Magnitsky, was killed in prison. Yeah. And that's when they passed this Magnitsky law because they were, it was on human rights grounds, and it, it it put sanctions on a whole bunch of Russian officials. That list has been expanding ever since. And that's a direct threat to Putin's uh, relationship, I guess you'd say, with the various oligarchs in Russia, because he uh, promises them that he can protect them. And all of a sudden, their funds, their finances, their ability to do banking and travel in Western countries is frozen by this law. So it, it raises questions of how loyal they might stay to Putin. It's a direct threat to Putin's ability to control this oligarchy that runs Russia. So um, this is a, a huge political problem. So Putin responded back then by, by you know, banning adoptions, trying to get leverage um, to uh, change this, this law. Um, but then on top of that, after the law was passed, after the sanctions were imposed, that's when the U.S. attorney in New York started going after this money laundering. And it, the path of that money laundering uh, leads directly to uh, Jared Kushner in a specific real estate transaction just off Times Square, where uh, he, Kushner, bought a building for almost $300 million, or part of a building, uh, from one of the companies that was involved in this money laundering. And it might have actually been um, how some of the money was laundered, because if Kushner pays this guy, this Russian guy, Leviev, $300 million, um, you know, he's, he's getting clean money for money that might have been laundered. So it, there's a lot for investigators to start looking into. So let's talk about this <clears throat> investigation by former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. Remind us what happened to Preet Bharara and what happened to this case that he was bringing. Well, they spent four years working on this case, uh, this money laundering case. They spent countless hours digging in, getting records, you know, compiling documents, taking depositions and testimony. Um, then in March of this year, Barraro was fired by Trump. Um, he had initially been promised that he could keep his job, but then Trump did a 180 and fired Barrara in March. In May, this case was supposed to go to trial. And why the trial is important is because if you go to trial, then you get everything comes out in the public, right? All the yes. witness testimony, the documents, we, we find out, 
you know, who did bad things to who uh, in the trial. But two days before the trial was supposed to uh, start, they settled the case, which means um, everybody got off with basically a slap on the wrist. And uh, a whole bunch of members of Congress, all Democrats, have sent a letter asking some very pertinent questions about this. What did the Trump people know about the, the, the settlement? Why did this happen so suddenly? Uh, who was involved? Was the lawyer involved in the Trump Tower meeting? Was she part of this because she was representing um, some of them? And there's such a tangle of conflicts of interest and overlapping, you know, I, I mean, this is stuff that, that lawyers have to sort out, but um, Trump's own lawyers, his personal lawyer, Mark Kasowitz, was representing the biggest Russian bank, which is connected to some of this money laundering. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on here that, um, you know, without being able to subpoena documents and get testimony, um, a reporter can only go so far, but that's what I was doing in this piece is asking questions about, um, you know, what did, what did uh, Kushner know about this real estate money laundering and how far did it go and how much, how deeply involved was he? So we're speaking with Bob Dreyfus. He is writing a series of article, weekly articles for The Nation about what we call the Russia thing. Uh, and one just posted today, what did Trump and Kushner know about Russian money laundering and when did they know it? Uh, you opened that uh, new piece by saying that the person who could be the most vulnerable link in the Russia investigations is Jared Kushner, who could face criminal charges. Let's talk a little bit more about Jared Kushner's part in all this. The, the meeting, which is po potentially the smoking gun here, is that Trump Tower meeting with the Russian attorney, Natalia Veselnitskaya. Uh, Jared Kushner has said he did not know who this meeting was with. He did not know this person. He did not know the topic of this meeting. Is there any evidence that Trump, that Jared Kushner would know who Natalia Veselnitskaya was? Well, it would be, it's hard to believe that, uh, that he wouldn't know who she was. And um, it's hard to believe that he wouldn't have uh, engaged in discussions with uh, Don Jr. and the other people who went to that meeting. He's a pretty important, wealthy businessman. You know, he's in his late 30s. He knows how business works. He wouldn't just show up to a meeting without uh, having any idea uh, who it was or, or why he was going. And, of course, we know that the people at that meeting from the Russian side said that they were bringing information, dirt, on Hillary Clinton and the support of the Russian government for the Trump campaign, and were they interested? And, of course, uh, Don Jr. said that he was. Um, this is a meeting which has been multiply covered up. Um, Don Jr. issued a whole series of misleading statements about it when it first came out. We now know from Washington Post reporting that the president himself essentially dictated the first misleading response that his son gave, the one that said this was just about adoptions and nothing else. Um, and you may know now that the, the breaking news that's coming from a whole bunch of different directions is that uh, 
Mueller, the special counsel, has empowered a grand jury in Washington. Yes. They're, they're calling witnesses and subpoenaing people to come testify uh, about that meeting. They're getting, they'll be getting the, the phone records and banking records and all kinds of things that would surround um, that meeting. There's, CNN is reporting that uh, Mueller is digging deeply into Trump's family finances, uh, crossing that famous red line that Trump said uh, that he wouldn't allow to happen. Um, so, you know, this this is ha- moving very fast. You, you wouldn't have the convening of a grand jury uh, unless the prosecutors felt that there was evidence of a crime. They don't just have a grand jury to, um, you know, do random investigations. So that could mean that they are looking toward issuing indictments now. And I want to let me just interrupt to ask what what is your understanding of what the possible crimes here are? Well, um, I, I guess they come into three categories. Um, the first one would be the most obvious one, in a way, obstruction of justice. Yes. If Trump or any of the people in his circle. Um, took actions that looked like they were designed to suppress or cover up or prevent the investigation from moving forward. Uh, The most obvious one, of course, being the firing of the FBI director, James Comey, uh, a while ago, but there's a whole bunch of other things. I would include the firing of Preet Bharara as an obstruction of justice on the basis of what you've told us about this. Very, very possible. But I mean, Trump also, as you remember, met with some of the top U.S. intelligence officials and asked if they could make this investigation go away. He's been intimidating uh, his own attorney general, Jeff Sessions. He's he's criticized, made fun of the deputy attorney general, who's actually overseeing the Mueller investigation. And he's attacked Mueller himself. So, I mean, there's a whole pattern of this going on, plus the the dictating of that response from Donald Trump Jr. Yes. as just one example of an attempt to uh, mislead both the, the public and investigators about the, the point of that meeting. Um, so, okay, so first we have obstruction of justice. Second, there's the whole issue of collusion with the Russians, not just did the Russians hack information from the Democrats and release it to WikiLeaks, but did the Trump people know about it? Did they encourage it? Did they cooperate with it? Did they talk to the Russians about it in a knowing way, in a way that would have um, indicated to the Russians that they had the support of the Trump people? And that's a whole second area where, um, you know, crimes could be committed. And then the third one um, would be this whole tangle of issues around uh, money laundering, around um, improper financial transactions with the Russians. Um, so, uh, so, I mean, there are three, and then, of course, there's specific uh, investigations that Mueller's looking into around uh, General Flynn, who was the national security advisor for a short period and who um, was forced to resign over his own misstatements and prevarication about his connections with the Russians, um, and about Paul Manafort, who has 
the former campaign manager, a businessman who had connections to the pro-Russian forces in Ukraine, who did business with um, Russian uh, bankers and investors, who took money, uh, may have lied about how much money he took. Uh, I mean, there's there's so many angles for them to pursue that I, I just can't believe that um, some, you know, by the end of this year or sometime early next year in the spring, we won't see a series of uh, indictments and a major report coming out from the Mueller people. And looking uh, back to the uh, the the Watergate cover-up indictments, uh, uh, the Nixon's White House uh, staff uh, members were indicted for, uh, charged with, and convicted of, and sent to jail for obstruction of justice and also conspiracy to obstruct justice, which is a separate crime. And I think we see some some uh, conspiracy here uh, potentially, don't we? I I can't see how that wouldn't be that wouldn't be true. And and um, you know, I mean. You can start in one place with an investigation and go to another place, right? We all know the the famous story of Ken Starr yeah. uh, investigating the Clintons. He started with um, real estate, a real estate transaction and some stock transactions that were uh, being questioned and went in a whole bunch of different directions. And, of course, the impeachment of Bill Clinton was over uh, lying about a sexual relationship to uh, the FBI. So um, these investigations are unlimited in scope. And the idea that Trump's argument that it's, you know, they only have uh, authorization to look at Russia um, is is just wrong. Um, although, as you mentioned earlier, and as I put in the article, uh, looking at Russia includes looking at Trump's finances, because of the multiple levels of, of connection between so many Trump people and so many Russian uh, uh, bankers, Russian banks, Russian real estate people, um, many of whom have, you know, really questionable backgrounds. Bob Dreyfus, he's, <clears throat> he's writing a series of weekly reports for the nation about the Russia investigations. The new one, posted just a couple of hours ago, is titled, What Did Trump and Kushner Know About Russian Money Laundering and When Did They Know It? In this piece, Bob makes the case that, that what we call Russia and Trump's family finances are inextricably linked. Read it now at thenation.com. Uh, we will be returning to these topics in the weeks to come more than once, I believe. Uh, Bob Dreyfus, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thanks. It's been my pleasure. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, David Cole, legal director of the ACLU, talked about whether Trump could pardon himself and what that might mean politically. We also spoke with historian Nancy McLean at Duke University. Her new book is titled Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sin Window. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, This Is Happening. Jerry Quickly speaks with Elizabeth Dwoskin of the Washington Post about language policing on the Internet. 
Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on this same station. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>